There's an online hub of academic scholars who have compiled a list of the greatest ancient cities that everyone should know. They base this list on each civilization's longevity and ingenuity and contribution to the world. I'm not going to list all of these cities that they named in this study, but I will list a few. Number one on their list, Memphis. Not country lovers, country music lovers in Tennessee. This is Egypt, dating back to 3200 B.C. It was Egypt's oldest and most important city. It served as the nation's capital and center of religious activity. It's where all the pharaohs were crowned and where the pyramids of Giza were built. And it remained Egypt's most prominent city for 3,000 years, all the way up until the Roman Empire. Another one that made their list was the city of Nineveh. Of course, we know Nineveh from our study of the book of Jonah. One of the world's oldest cities, even mentioned all the way back in Genesis. This infamous bastion of the Assyrians was one of the most wealthy and powerful cities of the ancient world. Many of its cuneiform tablets and clay pots have survived and can be found in the world's museums. It, remains a, it, re, it remained a dominant power until it was destroyed by the Medes and Persians in 612 B.C. And then, of course, there was Babylon called the jewel of Mesopotamia's ancient cities. It boasted some of the most beautiful architecture of its time. Its hanging gardens are one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was at one time the world's largest city, and its archaeological records go back 4,000 years. We know, if you read the Bible, it's referred to many times throughout. And then, of course, there was Athens, the birthplace of Western civilization. This capital city of Greece became the place where democracy and philosophy flourished. There may be no other civilization that has influenced modern man more than the ancient Greeks. Much of our language, culture, architecture, philosophy, and ethics have all been influenced in some way by the Athenians. And there were more that made the list, but just to give you a highlight, these are cities that people still visit to this day. They do so to marvel at their monuments and wonder at the remnants of their ingenuity, civilizations that made their mark on history and have influenced our world. But as important as those cities were to mankind, there was only one city that was special in the eyes of God. It was the place that God had chosen to be a bridge between heaven and earth, a meeting place between God and man, the city of Jerusalem. It was a city with eternal significance, a city that God promised to His people as a place where He would be present with them, where they would be His people and He would be their God. Jerusalem was to be a witness to the world concerning who God is. 
They were the light of the world, as a city set on a hill. But sadly, it was this city where Israel broke their covenant with God time and time again. It was this city where the people exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served idols. It was this city where a relationship with God was replaced with a dead religious system. And because of this, it was this city that became the source of Jesus' tears. This is the text we considered last week, 1941, when Jesus drew near and saw the city, which is Jerusalem, He wept over it. So this verse sets the tone for what is to come, which is going to be our study this afternoon, and I have broken it into three parts, which will help you digest this, of course, I hope. The first, we will see Jerusalem's significance. Then we will see Jerusalem's culpability. And then we will see Jerusalem's judgment. Jerusalem's significance, culpability, and judgment. First of all, Jerusalem's significance. Verse 42. Jesus is weeping over the city. He says in verse 42, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Now, if your translation does not include the phrase, even you, or have some way to articulate an emphasis here, it is wrong. Most translations I looked up got it right. Even the New Living Translation, which is not a real translation, it is a paraphrase, meaning they're not translating it word for word, they're translating kind of the big idea. So it's not a very good study Bible, but even the New Living Translation showed the emphasis by saying, you of all people. And I believe that is the intent of what Jesus is saying. Even you. So, Jesus expected this city of all other places to understand what was happening before them. It was Jerusalem that was given the very presence of God. It was Jerusalem that was the city of divine destiny. Not a city in ancient Assyria or Babylon or Egypt. Jesus didn't expect the Romans or the Athenians to welcome Him. But out of all the people groups on the earth, this was a privileged people because God not only chose them to reveal His will, but Jerusalem was the place He would manifest Himself to them. In other words, it was a city where they could come to know God. Now, because of their significance, they were responsible to know what was going on before them. They should have heard the teachings of Jesus, seen His miraculous works, and recognized Him as the one they were waiting for. Jerusalem was special, and Jesus expected them, out of all peoples, to understand what God was doing. 
in their generation. Now, God's plan for this city goes all the way back to the beginning of your Bible. It was in the days of Moses when God gives the Israelites the law in the wilderness. And He tells them there's a land that He's going to give them and He's going to give them a permanent place so they would not be wandering and setting up their tents and breaking it down and going to the next place, but there would be a place that He would establish. Deuteronomy, God tells them that He will choose a city to make His name dwell there. In Joshua, when the Israelites conquer Canaan and they begin to occupy the cities of those peoples that God had judged, it's the first time we hear of Jerusalem, which is called the city of peace. In 2 Samuel, David establishes Jerusalem as the city where he would reign over the nation. It is the city where he built his palace, and it is the city where he wanted to build a house for God, but was prohibited. In the Psalms, Jerusalem is mentioned by name 17 times and another 40 times alluded to. If you read into the Kings, it becomes evident that Jerusalem was the place that God wanted His house to be built. And so He commissioned Solomon to do it. And God says, His eyes and His heart will be there for all time. So the temple is completed and Solomon makes a prayer of dedication and all the people of Israel are before the temple and God responds in 1 Kings 9.3 by saying, that's not the one, almost there. I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. So Jerusalem became the centerpiece of the nation and no longer were people permitted to go up on the high places around the nation and worship God. That was acceptable in the days of Samuel. But once the temple was constructed and once God had put His blessing there and made His presence there, then all of those high places now become forbidden places. Which is why when you read through the Kings, you see that that becomes a stumbling block to Israel. It was also in Jerusalem where we see Solomon's idolatry. And God divided the nation in response. But even after he judges the nation, he says this in 1 Kings 11.13, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son, for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So I'm making a point here that Jerusalem was a big deal and God said it was His city. During the time of the prophets, it was Jerusalem where God sent many of them to address the nation, calling them back to faith and repentance. And it was in Jerusalem that many of those prophets were put to death, according to Jesus. 
So God loved His people and He sent warning after warning to turn back to Him. But they had a history of suppressing the truth about God and they would even kill the messengers that were sent to them. And so God judges the nation. He destroys their temple. And the people are exiled to Babylon. And when they get to Babylon and they're in, captive, they're, they're, they're in captivity there, they sang about their city. Psalm 137.1 By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion is a code word for Jerusalem. It's the city of God. A few verses later, verse 5, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. While they were in captivity, there was a captive named Daniel. And we are told in chapter 6 that his regular practice was to open his windows and pray three times a day facing Jerusalem. Why would he do that? Because that is where the presence of God was. That's where God promised to dwell with His people. Even though they were in captivity, even though God had destroyed their temple, He still saw Jerusalem as God's city. In Ezra and Nehemiah, it was Jerusalem where the people returned from captivity to rebuild their city. Even saying, He is the God who is in Jerusalem. It was Jerusalem that Zechariah the prophet said that it's the city is the apple of God's eye. And I could give you many more references. I think I've made my point. But this is why Jesus says in Luke 19.42, would that you, even you, even you Jerusalem, meaning you of all people, it's because their significance was great. No other city had God put His name or promised His presence. No other city in all the earth was expected to be a place where you could have fellowship with the living God. But the people forsook Him when He came to them. The people rejected Him. And Jesus tells them what they should have known. He says it here. The things that make for peace. He expected them to know the things that make for peace. Jesus came to offer them peace with God. He came to offer them eternal life. He came to reconcile them to their Creator. It is peace that is the essential characteristic of the Gospel. My little pre-sermon that I was talking about religious people. What we want to do is share the Gospel with them because it is the Gospel of peace. How to be reconciled to God. If you look at all of the teachings of Christ, there is a point that they pivot, and that pivoting point is to have peace with God. That is the message of the kingdom. 
Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, speaking of Christ, he says, For He Himself is our peace. Verse 14. And then in verse 17, speaking of Jesus, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So this is the message, beloved. The Gospel we preach is a message of peace with God, and if your message is anything other than that, it is a wrong message. If your message is one of hell and judgment that is absent of a message of peace with God, you have the wrong message. If your message of the Gospel is promises of peace and prosperity and good health, and not reconciliation, it is a wrong message. If your message is living by a set of rules as a way to gain God's favor, it is a wrong message. The kingdom message is a kingdom that Jesus brought, and it is a message of peace. Surrender your weapons. Lay down your arms that you're using to fight against God. Turn and be forgiven. Now, of course, the message does include a judgment day. And the judgment day is a warning for people who refuse the message. But the message itself is a message of peace. After explaining the Gospel in Romans, in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So all of these Old Testament promises that God gave the nation, He promised them peace on every side. He said, if you walk in My ways, I will bless you. All of that culminated in the person of Jesus that the true and lasting peace was peace with Him. I mean, what good would it be for a nation to have peace on every side from their political enemies and to have God as your enemy? To, to, to be at war with God because of your sin. And so, Jesus expected them to hear and believe this truth of peace because of Jerusalem's significance. They were a promised city. They were an important city. And this leads into our second point, Jerusalem's culpability. Jerusalem's culpability. Verse 42, I'm kind of chopping up verses here just to make this point, but you'll see it. He says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And then if you drop down to verse uh, 44, the last part of it, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So there's a principle in Scripture that the more you know, the more you are held accountable to respond or culpable. The more of God's revealed truth that you know, 
the more you are expected to, uh, to hear and to obey. So this should be a very straightforward concept for us. Parents, you recognize that if your child is eating something on the sofa and they, they spill it, and yet they didn't know they're not supposed to eat on the furniture, you are very lenient with them because uh, they did it with ignorance. But if they have been told repeatedly not to eat food on the furniture, then when they do, it's going to require some kind of punishment. The difference between the first and the second is the level of knowledge that they had. The first requires leniency. The second requires punishment. Paul makes the argument in Romans 2 that those do not have the law will be judged by a certain standard, and those who do have the law will be judged by another standard. And his point in that chapter is to show the Jews that they are more culpable because they know what God requires. See, in the Jewish mind, they had the law, and they thought somehow that protected them. God gave us his law, and therefore we... uh, We do our best to keep the law. And Paul's point in Romans 2 is the law does not save you. It just makes you more accountable. In fact, he goes on to say, Gentiles who don't have the law, when they do what the law requires because of their conscience, they are more righteous than the Jew who has the law but doesn't obey it. So we see this principle also in the Gospels. The reason that Jesus pronounced judgments on certain cities is because in his preaching ministry, they heard his teaching, they saw his miracles, and they rejected him. And judgment was going to be worse for them because they knew what they were rejecting. They saw him heal someone who had been born blind. They saw him feed the 5,000. They saw him whatever. They were now more accountable than people who never saw those things. In fact, he says in Matthew eleven twenty one and 22, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. If that sounds familiar, we saw that back in Luke chapter 10. So these cities in Israel, Chorazin and Bethsaida, were more culpable because they saw the miracles And they heard God's invitation to salvation and they refused it when Old Testament cities like Tyre and Sidon never had that kind of opportunity. And Jesus says something staggering here. He says these Gentiles would have repented if they had heard it. In other words, this is how wicked you cities are. Those Gentile cities would have repented if I did what I did in your presence in theirs. 
So God expects those who know His Word to obey His Word, and they are more accountable because of their knowledge than those without such knowledge. This was true for Jews in the first century. This is true for our nation in the 21st century. I mean, we are a privileged people in the United States who have had hundreds of years of gospel witness. I'm not making a parallel between the United States and Israel in any way. I'm just taking this principle to show that in a nation that has some 380,000 churches, more light means more accountability compared to those ancient nations who had none at all. Now, just because there are a lot of churches doesn't mean that automatically it's like it's in the air and people understand the gospel. I get that. But to prove the amount of light that there is in this land, ask an average unbeliever that you know what they can tell you about Jesus. Doesn't matter if they believe, doesn't matter if they're Buddhist or atheist or whatever. What can they tell you about Jesus? Well, he's supposedly the Son of God. He performed miracles. He taught people to love. And he died for our sins. Now, that is a blinding light compared to ancient Babylon. I mean, we're talking floodlights of truth. Now, I'm not saying they fully understand the gospel. I'm not saying they don't have all of this jumbled in their mind and they pour different meanings into this or that. But just the very basics of the gospel, your average unbeliever in this country knows. I mean, how many of them do you talk to? They have the cross on as a piece of jewelry or a tattoo. Or have been to a cemetery where there are crosses everywhere you look. Are you telling me they would never ask, what does that cross mean at any point in their life? The average person in America has more light than the majority of people in the history of the world. And that does not make them safer. That puts them in greater danger. In his book, Sodom Had No Bible, Leonard Ravenhill said this, Sodom, which had no Bible, no preachers, no tracts, no prayer meetings, no churches, perished. How then will America and England be spared from the wrath of the Almighty, do you think? We have millions of Bibles, scores of thousands of churches, endless preachers, and yet, what sin? And the point is, if God turned the city of Sodom into a burning rubble to the point where we can't even find where the city was located, what might He do with a nation like ours that is flooded with gospel light? 
When people sin in Western culture, they do it with the knowledge that it is against what God has said. Now, of course, people are hiding from God, and so they build up barricades around them. Well, you can't really believe the Bible. They're a bunch of fairy tales. And yeah, it's possible that Jesus never even existed. Or Jesus was just really a preacher of love, and since love is love, then we just want to love each other, and that's how we define it. Or whatever their excuse, the truth remains the same. They've heard, and they have refused. Same issue in the first century. Same culpability we're talking about with ancient Israel. They heard and they refused. And so they try to do away with Jesus. They do away with Jesus by building those mental barricades I just described. In the first century, the plan was to do away with Jesus by execution. But the same thing is going on. They suppress the truth about God in natural revelation, meaning um, creation itself tells us there's a God. They suppress that truth, and they have their own creation story. And they suppress the truth about special revelation, which is God's Word to us, saying, oh, well, no one can really believe that. Oh, it's been changed so many times. Whatever their excuse may be, and there's many, many excuses, it's a suppression of truth because they do not love the light. And the more they are given, the more they are culpable. Now, This means the more you are culpable also. This is also a warning to the church. Many who come to hear the message are not changed by the message. Many who have grown up in homes that are filled with the Gospel are not Gospel believers. And so week after week, they attend church and they hear the Word, and then they go home, and they are worse off if they are not embracers of that light and walking in that light. They are worse off. When I was young and unregenerate, I would feel good after church. Kind of pat myself on the back, we'd go to Mass, I'd feel a little bit better about myself, at least I went to church. But all I was doing was being exposed to some light. I mean, there's some light in the Catholic system. I was being exposed to light, and rather than feeling good about myself, it's just making me more accountable to what I did hear and understand. I hope that's not the case with any here today. I don't know anyone's heart. I cannot see into... What's going on spiritually with you? I hope it's not the case that you hear over and over and over and are never changed by it. You never embrace it. It's something you just sort of add to your life as some sort of accent to uh, whatever it is that you're pursuing in this life and you just sort of put a nice little brush, a finishing touch on it because you were religious too. And so you... You lived as you pleased, but you had some religion in there, and you think that's making you more acceptable to God when it's actually the opposite. I hope that's not 
anyone's story here today. In the ancient world, a floodlight came down from heaven on the city of Jerusalem. In the midst of a dark world, this light came down on this city, and as far as revelation was concerned, God had the faucet turned all the way on in the person of Jesus. It was not this light release of revelation as we have through the Old Testament. It was the full force of God pouring it out upon this city. And they refused Him. The God who revealed Himself to them, they refused Him, even spitting in His face, literally. And so what is the response? What is the divine response? Instead of a visitation for salvation, they receive a visitation of judgment. Instead of the promised peace that Jesus brings, there will be a promised destruction. Which leads us to our third and final point, Jerusalem's judgment. Jerusalem's judgment. Verse 43. He says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. One of the great deceptions throughout Jewish history, if you read the Old Testament, is that they thought that because they had the land of promise and the city of promise and they had the temple and they had the law and they had circumcision and they had a priesthood and they had animal sacrifices and they had this whole system that God had ordained, that that would keep them safe from God's wrath. And so you see this deception where they misinterpreted the promises of God about their welfare to mean they could do as they please and God was not going to judge them. And so all they had to do was work the system. They, all they had to do was some kind of external obedience and they would be safe. All of these external activities surrounding the temple and the Sabbath and all the rest their heart could be at enmity with God, but as long as they were doing the system, they believed everything was fine. <clears throat> now, they shouldn't have thought this way because not only um, did that prove to be false based on their history, but when God would send prophets to them, they would tell them not to think this way. Let me give you one example. Jeremiah 7, verse 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another... 
drop down to verse 7. Then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. In other words, the Jews had a kind of arrogance in their day where because they had the temple, it was like some sort of religious superstition. The temple of the Lord. Like, of course we have God's favor. Don't you see the temple? And yet God would send messengers to them and tell them, don't trust in the temple. God could take that at any time. And so God got their attention by, guess what? Taking their temple. What Jesus pronounces against them in Luke is the very same thing that they thought in the Old Testament protected them from divine anger. And they refused the one that all of that pointed to. The sacrifices pointed to Jesus. The priesthood pointed to Jesus. The prophets pointed to Jesus. The temple itself was a type of the one who was to come. Now, this is a. This text in Luke is a text on. That's not what I want. On judgment. And there's a lot more in chapter 21 about what God says about the temple. Jesus is going to make more prophecies about the temple. But I'll just highlight what's going on here. Everything Jesus says in this text came to pass in the year A.D. 70. So 40 years after He warns the people, the Romans destroyed this great city and demolished the temple. And just as Jesus said, no two stones were left on top of each other. And have you noticed, it remains that way to this day. There is no temple in Jerusalem. There is only a western wall, which was the outer wall that surrounded the temple. And that is all that is left. So 2,000 years later, God still speaks through through the absence of that temple. Now notice in verse 43 how specific He is, he says, your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Now this is called a siege, and this is when an opposing army would surround a city so that none could enter and so that none could leave. And that meant that supplies would eventually dwindle And the people would become so desperate that they would finally surrender or they would become so weakened that they would be easily destroyed. Now often these sieges lasted for months, as was the case here. Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote extensively about the temple's destruction in his writings called The Jewish War. There was a resistance by the Jews to the Roman authorities. There was uprising by these Jewish zealots who wanted uh, freedom from the Romans. And it came to a fever pitch where it seemed like some kind of warfare was inevitable. And in 66 AD, the Romans um, responded to riots by a very heavy hand. And they 
sort of uh, turned a bad situation into an explosive situation with an act of extreme overreaction, and they ended up killing 3,600 Jews. Now, rather than this quelling any kind of uprising, it just spread like wildfire throughout the city. And the city was overrun by Jewish rebels who wanted to fight. And for the Romans to put an end to this, they sent in 60,000 soldiers who surrounded the city And the siege lasted four months. And I'll just give you a brief reading out of Josephus' book, The Jewish War, about what happened in this siege. He says, Throughout the city, people were dying of hunger in large numbers and enduring unspeakable sufferings. In every house, the merest hint of food sparked violence. And close relatives fell to blows, snatching from one another the pitiful supports of life. No respect was paid even to the dying. The ruffians, that is the anti-Roman zealots, searched them in case they were concealing food somewhere in their clothes or just pretending to be near death. Gaping with hunger like mad dogs, Lawless gangs went staggering and reeling through the streets, battering upon the doors like drunkards, and so bewildered that they broke into the same house two or three times in an hour. Need drove the starving to gnaw at anything. Refuge, refuse, which even animals would reject, was collected and turned into food. In the end, they were eating belts and shoes, and the leather stripped off their shields. Tufts of withered grass were devoured and sold in little bundles for four drachmas. So it's a picture of desolation and devastation, just as Jesus described. And as I mentioned, we will see more about this prophecy in chapter 21. But I just want to point out one more thing before we finish. If you look in verse 44, Jesus answers the the question of why this would happen to this city. He says at the end of 44, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, why did all of this come upon this great city? Was it because of political factions among the Jews? Was it because of an overreach by the Romans that brought everything to a fever pitch? Was it the years of animosity between Jew and Gentile that was just brewing between these two people groups? It may have involved all of those things on a human level. But Jesus tells us precisely why this was happening to them. He says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, you know what this means. This means that God tore down Jerusalem. God did that. 
This was a judgment against this people who had so much promise, who had so much revelation given to them. The people that Jesus came to out of all the nations and places on the earth. He came to them. He offered them life. He showed them the way. He proved without any shadow of a doubt through His miracles and through His teaching that He was the one and there would be no other. And their response would be mobs of people yelling, Crucify! Crucify! And so He came to them and they refused Him and He shut the whole thing down. Now, someone might ask, in 70 A.D., were any of those people who were in Jerusalem Christians? I mean, weren't there disciples of Jesus in the city when all of this happened? And the answer is no. And that is because Jesus warned them ahead of time, didn't He? I had Richard read out of Luke 21, but I'll just remind you of some of what we heard starting in verse 20. Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So the disciple of Jesus, who is a believer, would hear the teachings of Jesus and they would obey. Because that's what believers do. And those who did not believe and obey would have perished. Now, more on that in chapter 21. But just to conclude with a final thought, the people of God are a people who are by faith. Right? God's people are not a certain ethnicity. It's not a certain religious system. It is not a building. It is not a city. It is not a temple. The people who hear and believe are the people of God. And Jesus comes to us again and again, doesn't He? Week in and week out. And people hear the message. Every week, I imagine, every day in this nation, people hear the message. It is like their day of visitation. It is like Jesus coming to them and presenting Himself to them. And the first century Jews did not recognize Him. And there are many today who will not recognize Him. And I pray that is not anyone's story here today. Jesus visits and He does so through the Gospel and He compels people to come to Him and He invites people to come and be reconciled. If that is you here today, and I cannot see into anyone's heart, On behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you to come and be reconciled to Him and do not pass up this day 
of visitation. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are so gracious. You are so merciful that You call to rebellious people time and time again to be reconciled. And if there are any here who have not been reconciled to You, I pray that they would be reconciled today by putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and following Him. And if there are any here today who are not in a good place with You, Father, I pray that this would be a word to them as well to come and be reconciled. That as many prophets were sent in the Old Testament to call the people back to faith and obedience, oh God, that You would use this message to call any in the hearing of My voice to return to faith and obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.